Would you take your Bible and open to Mark chapter 6? Mark chapter 6 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. Human intellect, human rationale, human assessment will always fail to embrace Jesus Christ. When we use our resources that we have, what we know, our knowledge base, our experience, our viewpoint on life, it will never be adequate for us to embrace who this Jesus is, to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. Left to our own abilities, we will always fail to see him for who he truly is. Human beings, uh, as we evolve, and I mean that socially, not uh, biologically, as we evolve over the decades, we have changed our perspective on things. There was a time when truth was truth, when we agreed upon certain things, and moral relativism, of course, has won the day, and everything is true insofar as it pertains to you. There's no black and white, no right and wrong. It's moral relativism. It's pounded flat. And if you hold to a view that is truth or absolute, you're sure to get some negative response from others who hold to a different viewpoint of things. Now, when we reject truth, when we reject something, there are lots of reasons for rejecting something. And if we think for just a minute about a few of the reasons we might reject this person of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. That's fine. We're glad you're here. We're not mad at you. We're not selling anything. Uh, maybe you've grown a little bit uh, tepid in your walk with Christ. Your relationship with Christ is cool or warm. It's not really vital to you. That's okay as well. And some of the reasons we might reject Christ, let me suggest, number one, a toxic background. And depending on how you grew up, perhaps you grew up in a, in a legalistic environment or where your parents were very rigid about going to church, being at church, doing certain things. And it's not surprising that when you go to college and become on your own, you might move away from that rigidity or what you view as rigidity, and you reject what you were exposed to as a child. And perhaps you are progressive, that in your own viewpoint of life and culture, you think, you know, I, I like this inclusive idea. I like loving. I like being tolerant. I like being concerned about bigger issues than just right and wrong. And that progressive thinking has a way of affecting everything we look at. So if you're progressive in your mindset, then when you see something, it's, this is the way it is, your natural posture is just to reject that, say, no, I don't embrace it. I reject that out of hand because I'm more open in my thinking. I have more advanced, perhaps, in my thinking. Maybe you listen to the populace. You listen to culture more than you listen to other things. I was with a, one of our members in the church has a school and he invited me some time back to come uh, be interviewed to give a little presentation. So I was getting ready for that. And he said, don't get ready, just come. So I came and he grilled me for an hour. And he wire brushed me on one side and poured salt on the other. It was a joyful experience. <laughs> Asked me all these hard questions. And we watched videos and slides and surveys. We moved around, listened to a song. And it was exhausting. And I came out and I said, this, I, said I don't think I helped you at all. And he said, well, he said, I learned about three years ago, I have to completely change the way I teach college students because you can't lecture them anymore. If you want to connect with them, you've got to use all this media and all this technology. And he's doing it extraordinarily well. And uh, he said, you know what? One of the most number, one of the highest uh, trending hashtags is for college students. Said, of course not. And it was hashtag TLDR, TLDR. Didn't know what that meant. He said, too long, didn't read. And you think of a social media platform, how quickly we can respond without reading anything more than the headline, 
without reading the article, without reading anything in depth, and we can make a knee-jerk instant response where we, we agree, we like, we dislike, we continue the trend. And social media is an infectious bacteria that grows at a viral rate that we can't control for good or for ill. Another reason we might reject is we don't believe this book is true. I talked to some younger people just this week, and they had lots of very perceptive good questions. And at core for them really is, is this true? Is this, can I believe it? Is it substantial? Perhaps another reason we might reject Christianity, we might reject Jesus, is because of Christians. In fact, I think that's a pretty big reason people reject Jesus. Uh, we have this saying in our household that, you know, there's some Christians you want to say, would you please not tell anybody you're a Christian? You give us all a bad reputation. You know, don't be the poster boy or poster girl for Jesus. Just, just go quietly away. Now, of course, we love them in a Christian sort of way. But sometimes Christians are just, can we admit some, okay, maybe you're not, but you know Christians who are annoying. Would you grant that? I, just, I, I, I wish they weren't Christians. I don't mean that literally, right? But they give us a bad... So if you're, not, if you're looking at this Jesus and you see a bad representation of Christ, what does that do to you? This reinforces why I want nothing to do with this Jesus. Well, in this story we're looking at today in Mark chapter 6, Christ is going to go to an audience that's going to reject him wholesale. And none of these issues are unique or new. It happened to the God-man himself. Let's pick up Mark chapter 6, the first six verses. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and the disciples followed him. When Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around in the villages, teaching. Uh, Mark moves the story. We've been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We saw the Gerasene demoniac healed. He comes back probably to the Capernaum area where he raises the Tabitha from death. And now we're moving a little bit to the west over to Nazareth, almost halfway between the Sea of Galilee going west to the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. So that's where his hometown would be. He's in the Sabbath and he begins to teach. And just for a little background, it was not uncommon for a rabbi when he traveled from town to town to go on Shabbat, on Sabbath, and teach in the synagogue. It was like a visiting preacher. And it was very common to invite those men to come up and open the scroll, read the scroll, and exposit it. And by the way, uh, you're in, I don't say this arrogantly, I say it confidently, you're in a rare church that opens the Bible, reads a passage, and explains it. That's as close to the first century synagogue as you're going to get. Most churches are doing other things that are good and important, but to open the scroll and teach it is what the basis of the synagogue model and the first century church was. So Jesus is at his hometown, and he's invited to open the Scripture. To, to get a little more color into this, if you've ever been to an African-American uh, church service, which is delightful and a little longer than fellowships, 
Um, if you're a visiting pe- preacher or missionary, if I show up at a friend of mine's church and I'm sitting in the back, I do tend to stick out a bit, but I'm invited to come give a greeting. And that greeting isn't, welcome from Nashville, I'm glad to be here, it's a privilege to be here. It's No, give a little sermon, and you're expected to preach, because they don't look at a watch, which is kind of a joyful thing. I'll never forget the first time I spoke in an African-American congregation, uh, there was a woman right here on the front row fanning herself. And as I was preaching, she was going, help him, Jesus, help him, help him, Jesus, help him. <laughs> it's burned in my mind for all eternity. But I tell that anecdote simply to illustrate, you came to town and you were welcomed to teach. So the rabbi goes home to Nazareth and he's welcomed to open the passage. Mark does not tell us what he teaches about. Mark's focus is on two things. The disciples are with him and the staccato of questions that are going to come machine gun fire that are very unnerving questions for the reader, for the human. Let me see if I can put them in a list. Number one, where did this man get these things? Where did this man get these things? What's the origin? What's the authoritative source? His critics want to know, where did you get these ideas? We've talked about case law as a parallel to rabbinic teaching. Rabbis don't do what I do, where I say this is what it means. Rabbis cited other rabbinic teachers. So it's like a lawyer. Those of you who are in law school or attorneys by training, you cite other cases. There's a precedent, and that's how you marshal your argument. That's very rabbinic in the way you taught the Bible. So you had to cite other people. You didn't just say, I think it means. Well, this is the God-man. What rabbi is he going to appeal to? He is the rabbi. So he is teaching them, and they're astonished at this, but they're critical, and it agitates them. Second question, what is this wisdom? And more to the way we would hear it, where did he get this information? Where did he get this smarts? The question is interesting because it implies he is wise. The question isn't, that's not true. Where did you get that wrong information? The question is, where did you get that information? How did you come across this wisdom? Again, he's not source citing Gamaliel or Hillel or some other rabbinic uh, voice that they would respect. They're unwilling to entertain the fact that he might be Messiah. Thirdly, the implication, where did you get the ability to do those miracles? This is also intriguing. They're not challenging the veracity of the miracles. They're saying, where'd you get the power to do that? Where'd you get the ability to do that? Because the rumors of the miracles that he had performed around Galilee in the Gerasenes had spread, and we'll see in a moment he'll, he'll heal some people. So it's impossible to argue with a, a miracle that's occurred, so they're going to challenge where he got the ability to do it. We might distill it to authority, wisdom, and power. Where do you get the authority to say these things? Where did you acquire this wisdom, and by what power are you doing these things? And as a reminder, when Jesus is born, Herod's after the authority wants him killed. When Jesus is crucified, the thief on the cross says, if you are the Son of God, if you have authority, the moment he's born to the moment he's crucified, his authority, his wisdom, and his power are challenged. And they're still challenged today. People still reject him based on those, there's lots of other ways you could look at it, but just for text's sake today, they're questioning his authority, his wisdom, and his power. Where'd you get these things? Now, you know the story of John 9, one of my favorite characters in all scripture. The blind man, congenitally blind, Jesus heals him. And the inquisition that unfolds after he's healed is one of the best stories of all. And they, they grill him and they want to know where this man came from. How did he do these things? 
The scribes and Pharisees will attribute Jesus' power to Satan. Why? Because if they attribute it to God, they've got to worship him. If they attribute it to God, they've got to acknowledge he's not like any rabbi we've ever seen. If they attribute it to God, then he must be true and we better follow him, which is going to disrupt our entire system. And so the attribution of where does this authority, where does this wisdom, where does this power come from? If it's God, then we've got to follow him, which we don't want to do. So it must be from Satan is the implication. Well, then it gets downright mean. Is this not the carpenter, son? Is this not the carpenter? Now, the word carpenter would mean something like, he's a local kid. We used to watch him pump gas at the gas station. We know this Nazarene guy. Don't you know him? Now, just as a sidebar, the word tecton here is the word carpenter. It only occurs twice in the New Testament, here and in Matthew 13, 55. And so from that, we extrapolate Jesus as a woodworker. How many children's books have we seen with Jesus building all kinds of things as a woodworker? And Justin Martyr and others believe Jesus did work with wood, and he made plows that were pulled by animals. Recent scholarship, and I say recent, the last 200 years, tecton has been uh, studied more, and many believe the word tecton is a stonemason, which theologically and romantically makes a whole lot more sense. If you visit Israel, because it is God's will for you to go, you will see a lot of rocks and stones in the ground that are enormous. You will not find hardly any trees, except in the north. When they build the temple complex, they've got to bring them in from Cyprus, from their neighbors up north. they got no trees that big. Acacia bushes or shrubs. How are you going to build houses out of wood? They're not. They're built out of stone. Everything's built out of stone. Now, the romantic side of that is he's born and laid in a stone-hewn manger, and he's crucified and he's buried in a tomb of stone with a stone over it. And he is the chief cornerstone who the builders rejected. And so the romance of the theology can certainly take us a lot away. It doesn't really matter. I would just simply suggest that it probably means more than a guy with a saw and some lumber and making some carts and framing out a door jam in antiquity because they didn't use wood in that way. That's all for free. Fifth question, son of Mary. Now, when you first read that, it's like, oh, no big deal. Not to be uh, too harsh here, but let me suggest it's more like he's a son of a... Because you never attributed a boy to his mother's name. You always called him son of Joseph, Benjamin, son of Amin. You never referred to him by his mother's name, which suggests strongly they knew the story. She was a young virgin who was pregnant and married an older man. Additionally, the brothers and sisters that are listed next, this, this whole lineup is, well, he, he had half-siblings. We know him. He's the son of Mary, not attribution to Joseph. And then the listing of the names. So it, it's a very, very likely, it's a smack of his illegitimacy because they knew him and they knew the story. Now, I hold to the view, can't prove it, specifically, but I hold to the view that um, the brothers and sisters are Joseph and Mary's children after Jesus was born. Makes the most sense in the Torah. Some believe Joseph, being an older man, may have been married before, lost his first wife, and marries Mary. We have no account of this. We only know that James becomes an apostle in the church and a leader in the church and writes the epistle, and we know a little bit about Judas, also known as Jude, not the betrayer, but known as Jude, who wrote a brief letter. Other than that, we know nothing of his family origin. Now, the point of all this 
staccato of rejecting questions is it culminates they took offense at him. The word offense is a very potent term. They took mortal offense at Jesus because, and became fatally ensnared in unbelief, writes one commentator. They took mortal offense at Jesus and became fatally ensnared in unbelief. You see, if you dismiss the divinity of Jesus, you've got nothing left. He's just a guy. And so these questions of rejecting him are positioning, we've got good rationale, we've got good reason to reject you. Yes, we're amazed at your miracles and amazed what you teach, and amazed, but we reject you. Because if they embraced him, they have to take the whole package. And then we have this astonishment aside where Jesus makes the cryptic remark, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Old Testament prophets were rejected in their hometown. We knew you when. You ever uh, visit a relative and uh, they say, oh, when you were a little kid, I used to change your diapers. Doesn't that make you feel warm all over? <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden you've become this little infant to this person. You're a grown adult. They go, I, when you were a snotty-nosed brat, I used to take care of you. And that, that doesn't make me feel good at all. It's like, Egh. you know too much, too much information. That's what they're saying. We know all about you. Old Testament prophets, we knew all about you. We know who you are. Who do you think you are telling us what God says? We knew you. When? And so Jesus says a prophet is not without, except in his own home. Because we knew you. It's the axiom, you have to drive 50 miles to be an expert, right? I mean, churches once in a while will call us to can do some consulting, whether it's Learning Center or one of the teaching pastors, and we'll go somewhere. I went last week and did some consulting with a church in Chattanooga. See, I was an expert there. Here, I'm just yesterday's news. We know you. We see you all the time. Jesus is saying the same axiom is true. Their rejecting of him, verse 5, is then culminated in this cryptic statement, and he could do no miracle there. Does that mean that because of their lack of faith, Jesus, the God-man side of the equation, the man couldn't do anything? No. It means because of their rejection of him, their disbelief of who he was, he wasn't going to put on a show. They'd already rejected his power, his wisdom, and his authority outright. It wouldn't have mattered what he'd done. And so he moves on, and he heals a few people, and then we read that phrase in verse 6, Jesus wondered at their unbelief. Why don't they get it? Beautiful picture of the God-man. Fully God, fully man. I would argue that was the best sermon they ever heard in their entire life. After all, it's his book. It's God who's preaching the sermon. And I have no doubt they were blown away and astonished and probably remembered that exposition the rest of their lives. But they didn't believe him. They rejected him. And he wonders at their unbelief. Now we have a big switch in the Gospel of Mark. We go to the next third section in the Gospel of Mark in verse 6b where he's going to go on teaching. He's going to heal a few, but he's going to leave because of their unbelief. And this is a sad chapter to me. We have no other information in the Gospels that he ever went back to his home because it was done. And he's on to the next thing. Think of the poignant irony. In the synagogue where the Word of God was taught, the word of God came, and they rejected him. And the scroll was rolled up and put back in the synagogue, and Jesus never again went home to his home people, insofar as the record says. Well, now the story moves, and the apostles are sent out. 
verse 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but wear sandals and do not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing many with oil. Many sick people were being healed. Again, this is the third section, verse 7. He sends the sent. He sends the apostello. He apostello is the apostles. He sends them out. In pairs, they travel light. Pairs would have a lot of rationale. Deuteronomy 15, uh, uh, 19, 15, you, know, the, you need the witness of two people to verify something. That was one reason. It's just there's, there's safety in numbers. It's also the collegiality of helping each other's strengths and weaknesses. They would go out in pairs, and it becomes part of a pattern that we see that goes all the way through the book of Acts. Uh, three items in particular that he told them, you're go going on a journey, I want you to travel light, and uh, you go where you're welcomed, and you stay there until you leave. What's going on here? So they're going to go into these villages, and they're going to do the things that he empowers them to do by his authority. Now, when you and I travel abroad, if you travel overseas, you have a 50-pound limit on your checked bag, and you have a carry-on allowance of a carry-on and a, like a purse or a briefcase. I always marvel at how people define those things. Uh, you know, I check my big bag if I'm going abroad, and I, I try to take the smallest amount in one bag and be one and done. But some people, maybe they're not very good travelers or who knows what, but uh, they come on board with a check bag that, that's the size of Jabba the Hutt. I mean, that's not going to fit in the overhead or underneath. You're going to jam up the whole plane. People are getting out. Don't you know? And I, I call it the oblivious traveler syndrome. They're just, they, they walk and they just stop. They, what's, what's it with our stuff we got to take with us? It gives us some sense of security. I got that big bag of stuff. If something goes wrong, if I, I mean, if I need 27 changes of clothes, I'm ready. If I need any medication, I've got every pill in my house in my bag. I mean, if anything goes wrong with my hair, I've got 27 appliances to fix my hair, right? And, but then what happens? We get there and we go on a day journey. We take a little less. And you might take a little less. What is it about stuff that gives us security? Nothing different. First entry today. I don't want you to rely on all your stuff. I want you to trust me. Now, if, if, you're, if you're traveling super light with a briefcase, you got your passport and two credit cards in your back pocket. Because if all else fails, I got my ID and I can charge something and get out of the situation, get on a plane, get a hotel, get a meal, whatever. Jesus says, no, you leave your bag and your coin at home. Take a walking stick. What's he telling them? Trust me. Leave your human resources at home and you go do what I've asked you to do. You herald, you teach, you preach. I'm sending you out to do that. They had heard Jesus teach. They'd seen him perform miracles. They'd seen him raise the dead. They'd seen him calm the storm. They'd seen him extricate demons out of a man in Gadarenes. They'd seen that man completely sane in his right mind. They'd seen all these things. They'd heard him teach. And he says, now you go do what I've done. And the only way they can do it is under his authority by his resources, not their human ability, not their wisdom, not their power, not their authority, but his. 
And that's the remarkable part of discipleship. He's empowering them with his authority. You know, as we face each decade, in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, this is my whole new theme of the way I'm looking at my life, and facing these decades. It, it just helps me kind of get a picture of where I've been and where I am and where I'm going. And uh, maybe it helps you, maybe it doesn't. Um, but I, I like to think of decades, not just the next year. What's going to happen in these 10 years? And what have I looked back to it forward to? And it's striking to review this in my own life, and maybe you should do this for your Christmas holiday. Spend some time looking at your decades. Your 20s and 30s, you're figuring things out. You're maybe establishing a family. Your 40s, you're strapped to providing for that family. Your 50s, you probably have money. That's sort of what happens to us in our 50s. We get money. We kind of get our kids positioned. They're out of the nest and maybe on their own. And then you have grandkids and you spend all your money. And, um, and then your 60s are the sweetest decade of all if you have health. And your 70s, 80s are your declining decade. You know, I'm an encouraging kind of guy. That's what I want to do. You're going to die, just to let you know. You 20s and 30s, be afraid. Be very afraid. You will get older. And, um, and, and so when you face these chapters, we get so horizontally focused on life and stuff and acquisition. And stewardship is it's important. Do not hear me say be foolish. But let me ask the question, on whose resources are you and I depending? And you know, Cindy, I've done a lot of things right. We've made a lot of bad choices. But we've done a lot of things right by the book. And now we're at that cusp going, okay, we did those things right. What matters? What matters? Does that really matter for eternity? What matters is the person work of Jesus Christ in your life and mine. What matters is, as Peter said, are we being the church no matter what the laws and regulations say? Each time he said that, I'm kind of pushed back in my seat one more time going, what are we worrying about? You know, less than that 3% of the world speaks English? You look at Russia and India and China, we're dwarfed by comparison numerically of people, and we think we're more important. Let's just acknowledge it. You know, Jesus was born to die that man might live. I find it curious that man lives so that he will die. And when you have this encounter with the personal work of Jesus Christ, your life and mine are to be reoriented, recalibrated, realigned, not with the world, not with social media, not with populace, not with trends, not with our history and our background and how we were raised, right or wrong or indifferently. We're to be aligned with Christ. We were born again. We have a new life. Do we live that way? Or do we carry around the baggage of the old, blaming everybody else for everything in the world, whining all the way, or do we understand we were born to die? No, we're born to live. As we've said many times, we're going from the land of the dying to the land of the living. This earth is not our home. This life at best is what? A clean bus station. We're just traveling through. Do you want to live well? Yes. You want to raise your kids? Absolutely. Enjoy your grandkids? Absolutely. Maybe even see some great-grandchildren. Great for you. Is that all there is? These people saw Jesus and they rejected him. They knew him. We know you. I remember you. I used to change your diapers. And he shakes his head. I offer them eternal life and they choose their petty view of this world. 
The scribes and Pharisees, we choose our system. We don't want you. You're a threat to us. Kill you. That's what we want to do. From the moment he's born, the moment he dies, he has power, he has authority and wisdom that are otherworldly. And he offers that gift to each, each one of you, each one of us. You can reject Jesus for a lot of reasons. You can grow cold. You can grow neutral. You can grow apathetic. I wish you wouldn't. I pray you wouldn't. I pray you'd wake up and say, I mean, we can't do it every day, all day. What's my life about Jesus? And live vertically, wonderfully every day. But if you did it a little more than you did yesterday, is that growth? If once in a while you ask the question, God, you, you have me at this hospital, this school, this home, this neighborhood, this world, where I am positioned, where I'm uniquely skilled and placed, and that's my world, and how do I influence and affect those around me for Christ? How do I grow to be more like Jesus, and how do I rub off on them? Sure, they're going to disagree with you. The moment you say, Jesus is the only way. But can you smile? Can you love them? Can you not be mad? Can you not withdraw and hide? Can you say, man, you're my friend. I, your friendship's important to me. I hold a different view. Can we talk about that sometime without being angry? Can we just have a conversation? And you know, God just might use you and me in that setting. We're going from the land of the dying to the land of the living. How well are you and I living now for him? Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that for all the reasons we might reject you, you embraced us. You died in our place on our behalf instead of us. Pour your word and your spirit's power into us to be the kind of men and women you want us to be, smiling at the future, not living in fear. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a phenomenal Thanksgiving week.